Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. It's great to see you here uh, this morning. Welcome to Kingsway, as Andy has said. Um, I just want to start uh, this morning by, by sharing something that basically happens most evenings after dinner in our house. Uh, basically, we have dinner, and then I go and I lie on the sofa in our living room. And then Max will come along and he will climb up onto the sofa. Then he will climb up onto the back of the sofa, which kind of rests against the radiator on the wall. And he'll walk along the back of the sofa really precariously. Like, you know, he's going to, you know, he's about to fall. He's balancing. He's really taking his time thinking about it. And I'm thinking, gosh, I mean, if you fall, you're going to hurt yourself. But he's, he's walking along, kind of inching his way along the wall. And he gets to the other end, the end where kind of my head is. And I'm kind of on the sofa. And he, sa- and he looks at me and he says, will you catch me? <laughs> and I look up at him and I say, yeah, jump. And then he sort of leans forward. And then leans back <laughs> and he's not quite sure. And he says, will you catch me? And I say, yeah, I'll hold up my hands to him. I said, yeah, I'll catch me. I hold my hands right up to him. I'll catch you. And then he says again, will you catch me? And I, and I say, yeah, I'll catch you. And eventually he jumps into my arms and I catch him. That's pretty much most evenings. And I, I'll be honest with you. I love it when he does that because it shows that he trusts me, shows that he trusts me. And, you know, likewise, God loves it when we trust him. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, trusting God, really simply trusting God. Now this morning is the, the final sermon in our God Stories from the Margins series, which we've been looking at over the last two months. And over these last two months, we've, we've looked at how God used two people from the margins of society, Ruth and Gideon, to do great things. And this morning, we're going to look at the final part of the Gideon story in Judges chapter 7, where we see Gideon trusting in God who brings about a fantastic victory for the people. Now, a little bit of a recap over the last few weeks. We've seen in the last few weeks that, that God called Gideon to save his people from the Midianites, who'd been terrorizing the Israelites for the last seven years. Gideon then asks God for some signs that it's really him. And, you know, God really delivers on the whole sign front there. You know, fireball to kind of, you know, obliterate a food offering. Then, you know, a fleece being wet and the ground being dry. Then the ground being dry and the fleece being wet. And, you know, and Gideon, by the end of this, is like, yep, that's God then. Um, And he goes, he gathers an army of 32,000 men. And I'm thinking, that's good going, Gideon. You know, fearful Gideon, who was hiding out in a wine press, has managed to couple together 32,000 men in an army. So I'm thinking, well done, mate. So at this point, he's camped with his men about five miles away from the Midianite army. He's ready to go. It's action time. The only problem is that while the Israelite army numbers 32,000, which you think, oh, that's all right. That's not bad. The Midianite army numbers 135,000. Okay, so they're, they're outnumbered like four to one, something like that. And that's where we pick up the story in Judges chapter 7. So I'm just going to read that now. You can follow it in your Bibles or it will come uh, on the screen behind me. Judges chapter 7 verse 1 says this. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. 
the camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. Okay, now I don't know what Gideon was thinking right there. I mean, whether he'd been thinking, really, Lord? I mean, too many men? Are you sure? I mean, I'm outnumbered four to one. But the Lord says to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me, saying my own strength has saved me. Now, announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So I wonder at this point if Gideon's thinking, okay, maybe a few guys, a few of the soldiers will leave, a few of the ones who are afraid. 22,000 men left, okay? 22,000 of his 32,000 leave and 10,000 remained. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men, okay? We're now 10,000 versus 135,000. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I said this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I said this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon obeyed. He took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. Okay, so the ones who got down on their knees to drink. And then there was some of them who basically got some water up and they cupped it in and, and drank like this. And the ones who drank it like this, he said, you keep them. The rest you send home. There was only 300 soldiers drank like this. So the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let the others go home. Now, many people have speculated down throughout the years, why did God choose the ones who, you know, lapped the water from their hands and not the ones who got down and kneeled? Was it that the ones, the, the 300 who, who lapped the water like this, they were, they were more alert than the others? You know, that they, kind of, they, were, they were watching for the enemy and the others just got down on their knees and just forgot about it. Was it that or was it something else? Honestly, I don't think so. I think God just decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reduce the number of this army and I'm just going to use these two ways of doing it. I don't think there was much in it, to be honest. There's much, too much that we can read into that. But he reduced the army from 32,000 down to 300. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you, to, if you, are, if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. It must have been a scary sight for, for Gideon as he saw this. Gideon arrived just on the edge of the camp. Just some man was telling a friend his dream, probably some soldiers in the Midianite army. And this man said, I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It, it struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. Okay, that makes sense for them to interpret this dream as the barley bread being Israel, because barley was the staple food of Israel back then. Um, and his friend responded, verse 14, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite, the Midianite uh, camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. So they've all got a trumpet. 
which would have been like a, like, a, like a lamb's horn or like a cow's horn, which you would blow. They have that attached to the side and they've got a, they've got a, little, a little lamp, which would be like a little lamp, and they've got a, a jar over the lamp to stop people from seeing that lamp. So that, that's, that's what they've got. Um, so getting the 100, 100 men with them reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets. Oh no, actually, verse 17. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Then verse 19. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. So, so back then they would have had maybe like three watches in the night. Uh, so you divide the army into like three thirds. So like the first few hours of the night, you'd have one third of the army staying watch. And then they'd have a changing of the guard. They'd all go back to sleep. And then the second third would wake up. They'd do have a watch. And then they'd go go to sleep. And then you'd have a third third, we'd go have a watch. Okay, so, so this, was when the, uh, this was in the middle watch, just after they changed the guard. And they blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shitta towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Mehola near Tabith. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them, as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah, and they also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the Rock of Oreb, and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. I'm assuming they were named after they were killed, these things, not before. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. So God brings this fantastic victory for uh, his people against the Midianites who had been oppressing them for the last previous seven years. And I just want to see, I just want us to see two things this morning from this passage about, about trusting in God. I want us to see two things from this passage this morning about trusting God. The first thing I want us to see this morning about trusting God is that trusting God begins in weakness. Trusting God begins in weakness. I would say trusting God always begins in weakness. You see, when Max was standing on the back of the sofa, kind of precariously balancing there, he was in a weak position and he knew it. You know, he's nervously balancing there, which led him to trust in me. Is that because he knew he needed me? You see, and the same is true with, with trusting God. It begins in weakness. Okay, because when we're strong, we're thinking, oh, I can sort it myself. I'm trusting in myself. It's in weakness that leads us to trust in God. And, you know, with Gideon and his troops, you know, even though Gideon's troops were outnumbered, when he had 32,000 troops, even though they're outnumbered four to one, all right, it's still militarily possible that he could win, okay? If he makes some smart decisions, good tactical decisions, he could still win. That's happened in history. Armies of that size have beaten armies four times bigger. And if he did beat the, the Midianites with 32,000 soldiers and then with 135,000, um, everyone would have been like, wow, Gideon is a great general. Wow, he has, he has made some fantastic decisions. So what God does is he reduces the 32,000 down to 300 through the water drinking thing and through people being afraid. And Now, 32,000 soldiers defeating 135,000 is unlikely, but 
possible. 300 soldiers defeating 135,000, that's impossible. Only God can do that, which is precisely why God reduced the army down to just 300. So that when they won, they'd give him the glory rather than take it from themselves. So that rather than trusting in themselves for victory, they'd trust in him. And that trust in God came from weakness. It came from reducing the army down to a weak force. You see, trusting in God always begins in weakness. If you think of, of the, anybody's testimony you've ever heard, you know the story of when they become a Christian. It always has a moment of weakness, a moment where they realize I'm sinful, a moment like I, I'm weak in the face of death. I don't know what I'm going to do. And then they trust in Jesus. Always weakness leads to trusting. Trusting in God comes through weakness. Now, pre-COVID times, Elizabeth and I and family, we, we normally go to Munich to see Elizabeth's family a couple of times a year. And one of the things we, we often do is we often see uh, one of Elizabeth's cousins, a guy called George. Now, uh, Elizabeth's mum, she's the youngest of quite a big family. So Elizabeth's cousins are all a lot older than her. So uh, George is actually sort of in his late 50s. Uh, I've met him, uh, I remember the first few times I went to Munich, met him a couple of times. Nice guy. Really smart guy. He's made it in life. He's a very successful doctor. He's got his own practice. He's pretty wealthy. Uh, He's also a Christian. He goes to church. Um, But a little bit, I don't know if you've ever met people who are a little bit, you know, just a little bit, they've made it in life. They kind of know it a little bit. You know, there's a little bit of, you know, can be a little bit judgmental towards people who haven't worked as hard as them. Uh, you know, can, can be a bit opinionated, a little bit like that. Not too much, not that, it, you know, quite forthright in their opinions. A little bit like that, but, you know, I've met plenty of people like that. It's fine. We, we met with them a few times, and it was fine. We had coffee. It was nice. And then, uh, I think after I'd met him two or three times, uh, we went back to Manchester, and then we met, visited Munich probably about seven or eight months later. And like we normally did, we, we met up with Elizabeth's cousin, uh, George, and his, his wife, Albert. Um, we met them in a, in a park, a beer garden. Uh, I remember it well. It was a really nice sunny evening. And uh, we left the meeting. We were there for about an hour, hour and a half. And I remember leaving and going to Elizabeth. I was like, Elizabeth, what has happened, George? And like Elizabeth didn't respond by saying, what do you mean? She was like, I know, right? What is up with him? What's going on? And we said to Elizabeth's mom, we said, Elizabeth, what's up with George? Like, like yeah, I know. Massive change, isn't it? Because we, we had this evening, about an hour or two with him. And he was just so different. The opinionated, kind of, kind of judgmental, the kind of the pride in what he'd achieved in life, gone. There was none of that. He sat, he listened, he asked questions. He was like full of empathy, like just caringness, compassion, stuff I'd never seen in him before. And there was a guy who, you know, was a Christian. All this completely changed. So I talked to Liz's mom. I was like, wow. What happened to him? What, is, what has changed? This guy is so different. She was like, well, basically, the last few months, he got really seriously ill. And, and I'll cut a long story short, but basically, through this illness, which I think he nearly died from, he, he realized in a new way his own weakness in life, his own weakness in the face of death, his own weakness in terms of everything, really, and realized that he'd been trusting so much in himself and in his career and his accomplishments, and that meant nothing when you're staring death in the face. And and through this illness, he began not trusting in himself anymore, but he began trusting in in God. 
And, and the change in him was profound. It was so clear to see. You know, he was, he was relaxed. He was content. There was a joy in him. And, and everybody could see it. Everybody could see it who knew him could see that. And I'll be honest with you, before that change, when we'd go to Germany and say, hey, do you want to go hang out with Georg and Almor? Yeah, whatever. Um, whereas now I'm like, yeah, when are we going to see them? You know, just so attractive, so nice to be able to hang out with them. Massive, massive change. And, you know, I, I think, you know what? Often we, we can be just like George. You know, we're, you know, good Christian man or woman. You know, we're, we're going to church, we're, we're doing what we do, we're, we're trying to do our best, but we're trusting in things other than God. We're trusting in career, we're trusting in family, we're trusting in our own ability, we're trusting in financial security. And, and you know what, everything seems hunky-dory when things are like that, until something hits us that threatens what we're trusting in. And you know, when you realize, like George did, when you realize I've been trusting in something other than God, and, and, and you put your trust back in him, Honestly, that changes us. It really changes. It brings a peace, brings a, like a relaxation, a restfulness like no other. I mean, trust me, I've seen that in my life. Psalm chapter 32, verse 10 says this. Uh, the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. The Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. You know, I was talking to Elizabeth about this stuff, you know, about my sermon stuff on Friday. And I was like, L Elizabeth, I mean, this all sounds good, but what am I actually trying to tell people here? You know, what's the takeaway from this? I just think I'm going to stand up and say, you know, trusting God begins in weakness. Everyone's going to go, yeah, I agree with you. So what? You know, like, what, what, what's the takeaway from this? And I, I think as I talked to Elizabeth, I thought more about it. I think... I think what I'd all love us to take away from this this morning is really simply to just trust him. That's the takeaway, to trust the Lord, to trust in him, to jump off the sofa into his arms more often rather than trying to always figure out how to get down yourself. That's what I'd love us to take away this morning. And that's what Gideon did, you know? God says, get rid of the soldiers. Okay, get rid of more soldiers. Okay, what, is that, what does that look like for us here, 21st century Manchester? What does that look like for us to trust God practically in, in our lives? Well, I mean, a few examples. I was talking to someone this week who tried to buy a house and it fell through and they're just not quite sure what to do. And, and we were just talking about it and, and we both just agreed, you know, you, you just got to do right now. You just got to trust God with it, really. Trust God with it. And, uh, and we're like, yeah, that's the thing to do. And, and, you know, it's, it's easier to say in a sermon at the front of church, you know, oh, I've had a problem, just trust God with it. It's much more difficult to actually do it, you know. And Elizabeth and I, we, you know, because when you trust God, what you're doing is you're relinquishing responsibility. Like you're relinquishing control. You're saying, okay, I'm not going to be in control of this thing anymore. I'm going to hand this to you, God. I'm going to let your will be done, not mine. And, and so a lot of people just don't want to release that control. Well, God, what if... You know, what if you get me a house in a weird place or somewhere, you know, scared of relinquishing that control? God says, no, trust me, give it to me. Elizabeth and I have this little thing sometimes we do. I mean, I've talked about it before. You know, whenever we're, there's something on our mind and we're just not sure what to do. And Elizabeth will often, she started it. She said, she'll, she, she, she'll cup her hands like this and she'll go, Andy, give it to God. And she'll make me put it in the hands. 
like, like, you know, like, like, you know, I've got this invisible thing, pull it out of here and like put it in the hand. And then, you know, I'll be, all right, it's in there. She's, no, there's more. And I'm like, you know, rooting around, it's like, oh, a bit more, you know, it's, it's like, there's more, get them, get it all in there. And then she just go, right, we're giving that to God. That's, and it's kind of a silly little thing, but it's really helpful to just visualize, okay, I'm giving this to God. I'm trusting God with this now. God, this is with you. Okay, you have it. You know, I was, I was talking to someone else this week just about like, I mean, just about people who, who don't hear about Jesus, like are kind of lost, you know, like, you know, do they, do they go to hell without knowing about Jesus? Like what, what happens with all that? How is that? You know, and we, we talked a bit about that. We, you know, I, I mentioned a few things, but ultimately I came and I said to the person, look, what you've got to get to, you've got to get to the stage of saying, you know what, Lord, I, I trust you. I trust that you know what you're doing in this whole situation. And that's the situation we got to. And it's, and it's difficult to say, yeah, God, I, I trust in you. I'm, I'm putting this in your hands. You've got this. You know, Elizabeth uh, and I, we would love to get to Germany um, to see Elizabeth's parents. Or Elizabeth's parents have not seen Grace yet. And she's like, you know, she'll be two in January. So we'd love to get there and see Elizabeth's family. But Elizabeth is really hard because you can't go with all this COVID stuff, restrictions and variants and all this kind of stuff. And Germans just don't want to let Brits in. And it's... It's all crazy. And Elizabeth says, you know, it's so tempting to try and fix it, you know, to try and like, you know, you know, pester your MP and all this kind of, you know, all this kind of stuff. You know, so I want to fix it. I want to fix it. She says, you know what? I've just, I'm fine. I just need to let God, God take this. He's in control. He's got it. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He has it. And you know, when you do that, I mean, I don't know what the situation is for you, but when you do that, honestly, it's going to calm you down. Okay. It's going to take the stress out of things. It's going to make you more relaxed because all of a sudden it's not on you. Okay, it's on God. You've given it to him. It's not on you anymore. The Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. So my question is like, what are some of the things in your life you just need to say? Like, Lord, this I'm giving to you. Okay, I've held it long enough. I've carried it. It's been a burden long enough. Lord, I give this thing to you. What is that thing in your life? Okay, so that's the first thing. Trusting in God begins in weakness. And this is only a two-point sermon, so this is the last point. Okay, we're ending soon. Trusting in God begins in weakness, but it ends in victory. It ends in victory. Gideon and his 300 men, they surround the Midianite camp. They sound their trumpets. They smash their jars. They shout, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And they probably shouted, ah, as well, and made loads of noise and stuff. And... And the Midianites, as I explained earlier, their guards changing over. So a third of the army are drifting back to their, their tents to go to sleep. The other third are getting up. They're kind of just wiping the sleep out of their eyes to start their watch. And the other third are fast asleep. So all of a sudden, the ones who are asleep wake up and there's all these people standing around in the dark, milling around. There's, no, there's noise, there's loudness, there's all this kind of stuff. And they just pick up stores and start... You know, swinging them around and killing each other. And there's panic, there's confusion. And then the Midianites start killing each other. And then eventually they flee and they start to run. And Gideon calls back the rest of the army that he'd sent home, plus others. And they chase after the Midianites and win the battle. God miraculously brought about a great victory. And he did it with an army so small that there was no doubt he was the one who had done it. Gideon trusted in God and it led to a great, great victory. And I don't know if you ever read the book of Judges. If you read the book of Judges, it's just this cycle. And then the cycle starts again. 
and then the cycle starts again, and the cycle starts again. Basically, if you read the book of Judges, what happens is God's people, they're there, life's hunky-dory, then they disobey God, and then they get themselves into a really bad way, and then they cry out to God and say, God, save us, help us. And then God sends someone to rescue them, like Gideon. He's one of the, the guys in the book of Judges. And then this person achieves a great victory, which brings peace for a while, and then the same thing happens all over again. They get into a bad way, they need another rescuer, they cry out to God, and then you know, things are okay for a while, and they need another rescuer, another rescuer. And, and later, rather than judges, they look to kings, same thing, to rescue them, to bring victory. Then they get into a bad way. We need a king, the rescuers bring victory. But the cycle just keeps repeating again and again and again until God sent a rescuer that would bring ultimate victory once and for all. No prizes for guessing who that is. We're in church. Come on. That's it. Now, this wasn't a, a, just a victory over an oppressive nation like with Gideon, but this victory that God brought, this ultimate victory was over sin and death itself. I mean, just think about that. Like taking on sin and death itself and winning. I mean, that is, that's, that's the ultimate battle. Jesus sent his own son, Jesus, into the world. He died a cruel death. Now, it looked like defeat. It looked like Jesus had failed and the devil had won. But three days later, we know what happened. He rose victorious from the grave. He had taken the sin of the world, which includes your sin and mine, on himself and died an excruciating death on the cross to pay for it. But he rose again, showing he had overpowered sin and death. He basically, Jesus basically picked a fight with sin and death, you know, and won. He picked a fight with sin and death and won. And the great thing is, when we trust in him, we get to share in the spoils of that victory. We get, to, we get what he won on the cross. Forgiveness for our sins and eternal life. Life, eternal life in all its fullness. Which means we can stare death in the face as Christians. And we can say, just like Paul said, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? What have you got on me, death? I'm with Jesus. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can say that to death. You know, I don't know if you ever have a conversation with death, but if you do, you can say that to death. That's the hope that we have as Christians. Isn't that good? Yep. Elizabeth, you're nodding. Yep. She says it's good. That's good, isn't it? It's good. I am so looking forward to getting audience participation going again after COVID, you know, getting the amens, getting those nods, getting those yes. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that, really am. But, you know, uh, just as I finish, just want to share this. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Elizabeth and I and Max and Grace, we went back to Northern Ireland to visit my family. Uh, and it was lovely to see everyone. Uh, and one of the things we always do when we go back to Northern Ireland is we always visit a couple from my, my church, an old couple. They're in their late 80s, early 90s, called Tommy and Irene. And when I first came to Manchester, I asked them to pray for me. You know, I was coming across this place I didn't know. And, uh, you know, and I said, would you just pray for me? And, and they've prayed for me consistently ever since. They sent me letters. They sent me money still. And, you know, saying they're praying for me and helping me and want to be there for me. So every time we come to Northern Ireland, we always visit them. And it's always lovely. You go to their house and they've the nice armchairs and their Bibles next to their armchairs. And it's just lovely. They'll make me a cup of tea and they'll ask about how church is going and everything. It's great. But... This time, a few weeks ago, when we were back, it was different because it wasn't Tommy and Irene. It was just Irene because Tommy had died a month previously. He was 90 years of age. You know, he'd, he'd lived a good life. He, he died at home, you know, in his, in his own bed. Um, but, you know, I was just thinking about him. I was thinking about his life. 
here was this, this humble guy, um, humble Christian guy who basically worked as a farmer his whole life. Uh, he never preached a sermon at the front of a church. He never wrote any books. He never did anything extraordinary. In fact, he rarely traveled very far from his home, actually. But he, he lived his life trusting in God right to the end. Read his Bible, prayed every day. He brought his kids up to follow Jesus. And, uh, and as a Sunday school teacher for many years, he taught hundreds of kids from the area about Jesus. And despite suffering uh, a lot of pain with kind of various illnesses later in his life, he kept trusting in God. He kept reading his Bible every day. He kept praying. He kept giving money from his pension to help missionaries across the world right to the very end until two months ago he breathed his last breath and finally got to enjoy everything that Jesus won for him at the cross and I don't know I just I just laughed you know when I we, we chatted with his wife and I just laughed thinking you know that's a life well lived right there you know if if you know if I get then I've lived a life like that I'd be happy I'd be happy with that and that right there that's what it looks like to trust God and end this life in victory. You know, crossing the finish line, entering glory, and having the Lord say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what it looks like to trust God and end this life in victory. Trusting God begins in weakness, but it ends in victory. Victory for Gideon, yeah, but victory for all of us who are trusting in him. And it's going to come one day. It is going to come one day. We're going to get to that moment. And it is going to be, I don't know how to describe it. Flipping fantastic is the best I can say right now. It's going to be awesome.